Hello, folks. You are listening to Rewriting Our Future, a Mind Control Exodus, with me, Paul Henning. Join us on our journey as we explore and actively work to deprogram ourselves from the forces in the world that socially engineer our lives. Are the politicians, doctors, scientific experts, and news anchors telling us the truth? Is school, pop culture, social media, and television programming supporting the development of our highest consciousness, healthiest bodies, and most sovereign selves? The more we research and listen to our intuition, the more we find that this answer is a loud and resounding no. And so, we are rewriting our future to opt out of the mind control these forces tirelessly aim to manipulate and coerce us with. Welcome to the show, where we are all figuring this out together. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Here we have episode 12 with you, and I have my new friend, Sarah Larson. Sarah has been studying fear, courage, and the neuroscience of it for the last few years, and she's been changing her life with the tips and tricks and understandings that she has come to know from all the books and the research she's been doing on her own. She just decided to take her life into her own hands and go right to the source to learn about her brain and how to help herself and to help others be more courageous to live the life that we that we dream of and that we desire without being riddled by so much anxiety and crippling fear. I really think you're going to like this episode. Sarah shares so many cool tips and tricks that we can practically use right now to help ourselves break free of some of the patterns that are holding us back. All right. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I am really blessed to have with us Sarah Larson. Sarah Larson is the founder of Fearless Rising, a growing platform that she uses to share with us how she taught herself basic neuroscience to fortify her mind against fear and reclaim authority over her life. And she uses this to teach us and encourage us how to do the same. Hello, Sarah. How are you today? Hey, Paul. Thank you. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for meeting with me. I heard you speak on here for the truth a couple months ago and i really uh was touched by that hour or so that you shared with the guys um and then i searched your name and i found you on another podcast a health something i can't remember and i listened to that one and i looked for more and i couldn't find any more and so i was like you know what i'm just gonna send her a message to see if i can listen to her more on my own podcast Aww. so thanks Thank for joining you. and Thanks yeah, and, yeah, it was great, and I um, I think I reached out to you first, and then I I didn't when I didn't hear back from you, I just joined the Friends of the Truth because I was like, it seems like a good place anyway, which is where uh, the Here for the Truth guys host their community. Um, so that's yes. been fun to see you a little bit in there as well. Yeah, that's awesome. No, it's um, that's one of the catalysts for the journey that I'm on right now is um, rise hmm. above the herd. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm in that class as well, the Rise of the Herd. And you did, I'm on the seventh iteration of this class, and I think you did the second one, huh? Yes, yep. Cool. Not the OT, but almost. Yeah, when they were still getting their getting their feet wet, figuring out what they were doing in there. Cool. So, uh, you know, I had a little bit of a, a bio there for you, but um, before we get into exactly what you do, will you give us a bit of a backstory as to how you got into... Uh, working and learning around fear and why it became a passion of yours. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's so many starting points. Like it's been like years and years of 
this has been in the works, but, um, you know, I've always had, um, chronic anxiety growing up. Um, I've always had mm. battles with my own mind. Um, and it got to a point where I felt like on my commute to work, I, I was having a heart attack. I was, I had nine one one punched into my phone and I was like, something's oh, wrong wow. with me. Like I, my stress response was so high and I didn't know what was going on. It felt like my mind was betraying me all the time and didn't really mm. realize that it was, it was stress-based and that, um, there were so many misalignments in my life. And, um, you know, in, in a, a move of desperation, I, I bought, I think I Amazon carded like 12, you know, neuroscience books and they, hmm. they waited on the shelf for probably a few years for me to really pick them up. And it wasn't until uh, a few years later where when COVID happened um, that, you know, my dad, um, he got sick. He had an autoimmune disease that came up pretty um pretty surprisingly, pretty out of the blue in January of 2020. Um, he was hospitalized for that in March and then again in April. Um, and that really was the catalyst that opened my eyes to what was going on with the medical industrial complex and how mm. everything was backwards and what allopathic medicine really is. And it, you know, he ultimately passed away after 72 days in the hospital on a ventilator. Um Oof. Yeah, I considered him, you know, he, I, I considered a murder, actually, sure. um, without really having any, you know, any proof of that. But I was able to um, visit him, you know, one hour a week. Oh, my gosh. Hospital, you know, up until the end where I was able to be at his bedside for a little bit longer for a few, few extra hours. Um, but that shook me to my core. It flipped my entire world upside down. My dad was my absolute hero. Mm. And not having him in the world anymore, it it felt like like the, the world was a less safe place. And I was like, I have to mm. step up and be my own hero now. I have to. I was on this like pursuit of truth now, like a relentless pursuit of truth. And um you know, I looked back at my bookshelf one day and I had all those neuroscience books sitting there. And it was almost like when the when the student is ready, the teacher appears and mm -hmm. I picked them up and it was like light bulbs going off, you know, with understanding the mechanisms of my mind and understanding, you know, the role of cortisol and threat threats and rewards and pursuit of pleasure and fleeing from pain and everything in between. Um, it really kind of got me down this rabbit hole of trying to understand my mind and trying to understand how I can rewire my mind to better suit my life and to better um, self-actualize. And, you know, I, I read, I don't, I don't think I've ever read as much as I had have in the last few years after the whole pandemic stuff, because I neuroscience books were not just, those were not the only books I read. I read about everything, um, just trying to understand the way the world worked Um it took me in all different types of directions and ultimately I ended up here. Um, hmm. This is one branch of my own like self-directed learning. And I'm so glad that my, you know, I, I rediscovered that, that love of reading and learning and being curious about how the world worked, because I guess one of the blessings about the whole blessings of the entire, you know, tragedy was that I was able to awaken again um, spiritually and, and emotionally and understand that like I, you know, life is, 
is so fragile and, and it can get snuffed out so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad's, you know, the tragic, the cosmically tragic, you know, lesson in all of this was that it, his death really taught me how to live wow. and it's put me on this trajectory now. So um, from that, my account Fearless Rising was born and I was, you know, I've been on this pursuit of understanding the mind from all different types of disciplines like neuroscience, psychology, mindfulness, and trying to tie all those together and understand fear and anxiety and um, self-limiting beliefs and anything that's kind of holding us back from reaching our full potential. So mm-hmm. that was a long-winded answer, but that's... no. Yeah. No, yo, thank you. Be as long-winded as you want. If, you know, <laughs> the people that listen to this page, they hear me talk enough, so you could can go as much as you want. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's uh it's really incredible that you were able to find the meaning in the suffering through this experience with your dad and you know, it's obviously that affected your whole family and everyone, you know, not just you and him and to take that responsibility on yourself to be the one that's coming to save you, like you're the one you have been waiting for and to fill his shoes. Um, that's really powerful. What was it about the hospital experience that had you believe and understand that it's a dangerous, allopathic, sinister, murderous place? Oh. Well, I mean, so many things. First of all, my dad was, quote unquote, awake to this entire charade before mm. it even started. So he was always in my ear about how the government's not going to tuck us into bed at night. And, mm-hmm. you know, even when the alarm bell started sounding in March of 2020, when this whole thing started, he was like, this is, um, you know, they, you know, lockdowns had started. And he said, they are, they are sacrificing one demographic for another, like meaning, mm. you know, the young people in exchange for, you know, trying to keep the other, the older, the seniors safe. Um, so he was aware of all of these, these mechanisms in place. Um, I was still like, I always um, took his word to heart, but I didn't realize the extent of, you know, how deep the rabbit hole really went until I was thrust into the middle of it. And, um, you know, I broke into the hospital to try to see him. Um, and I got within maybe 12 feet of his room of his door in the in the um not the icu the critical care unit um i made it past like three checkpoints wow and and then i was turned away and i was i was in hysterics like i would have you know there were security guards escorting me downstairs um and it just didn't make any sense to me because there were there were there was so much conflicting information he was basically in a coma at, at certain points because um he was ventilated and losing strength and the doctors were saying one thing they were like we need you here like we we want to advocate for more visitation but the administrative side of things won't allow that so they knew full well that my presence at his bedside may have made a difference in his healing journey you know being being with family members that he recognized with voices, with um, that presence, uh, that loving presence of family. Um, You know, I just, I will never know if that would have made a difference. Like one hour Mm -hmm. a week is nothing. I also witnessed a lot of neglect and I got a nurse fired because of things that I witnessed. Yeah. Um, 
you know, there were people not doing their jobs. There were people, right. there were nurses that were like temporary people called in, sitting at their stations on their phones. Um, my dad's belt, like all the bells and whistles are going off and I'm like waiting. And luckily I was there. Mm -hmm. I'm like, if I'm here one hour a day and this is happening and no one's coming to his aid, what's happening the, the other 23 hours a day? So there were people, I, I, it was pretty clear that there were people um, in need of care that they, and they weren't getting it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it wasn't, you know what, it, it wasn't actually until probably a year or two later uh, that I really, really understood the damage of what had been inflicted on him. Um, I knew things were off, but I couldn't really put my finger on it. I just knew that, like, this is wrong. I should be allowed there. Me and my brother should be advocating for him. He can't speak for himself. He's got something in his throat. And, um, you know, and there are hundreds and probably thousands and, you know, tens of thousands of people families just like me who went through the same thing. Um, some of their stories ended probably differently, better or, or worse, but um, it wasn't until later, like maybe a year later that I was like, wow, like I wish I had, um, I wish I had done more. Maybe I should have gotten legal counsel involved and tried to extract him somehow, but he was in such poor condition that I don't know, you know, what, what I could have done to like move him right private facility i don't there there were just so many unknowns like and that's the thing that i beat myself about beat myself up about is that i didn't know better than and and like i wish i'd known um the things that i know now and and that's the paradox of the situation is that like in him in this in this outcome th that's the only reason that i know the things that i know now it's because i had to go through that and right not then I wouldn't be here but the whole thing with me reading and like trying to understand things and absorbing information and consuming all this literature and research now it's like most definitely a trauma response because I feel like I was not smart enough or I was not well equipped enough or well researched enough mm -hmm. so everything like not even just science or like his condition or his disease, but like about the system, about the institutions that run this world that I, that I felt like I could have guarded our family against better had I known. So I, it's, mm -hmm. it's definitely me trying to make amends for that in the only way I know how. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's really, it's really powerful. And it's like, it feels insurmountable, I imagine, to like become aware of this thing that we have always thought was there to protect us. You know, it's like the government's there to help us. The police are there to protect us. The hospital's there to save our lives. And then you get, you know, you dive into a situation like this and then it, you know, turns upside down. You know, my family had a similar thing. My, my mom died in the hospital in November of 2021. And we were in San Antonio and it was past the isolation thing. So I can't imagine what you and your family went through, but it was still COVID protocols. And my mom was in there for a few months and it was an incredibly terrifying environment. Like <clears throat> she was suffering from organ failure and I don't have proof of this, but I have personal reason to believe that the, an issue that she lived with for many years and yeah. had been dealing with on her own and in fact getting better uh it just got extremely worse 
and mm -hmm. basically killed her with the help of the hospital. And I, I think that part of it had to do with the vaccine that she never wanted to get, but mm -hmm. because she needed treatments in South Texas that wouldn't let, they wouldn't give her the treatments for her illness unless she was, she wouldn't be allowed in the building without a shot. Wow. So at first she was telling me like, she was joking with us. Like when it first came out, she was like, don't get it. They're going to microchip you, you know? And we're like, well, that's on the right track right there at least, you know? And, uh, and then she ended up getting a couple doses of the shot and then her illness got a lot worse. Mm -hmm. Anyone in my family that would hear me say that would probably tell me that I'm crazy and I have no proof or correlation or anything, and I don't. But yeah. I know that I, I watched her for my entire almost four decades of life, and then all of a sudden this thing happens in the whole world. And I find on the COVID vaccine injury website that there's a website that's documented like thousands of peer-reviewed medical articles from all over the world, and you can just basically search by whatever somebody's died from and it'll find the article and so i found <laughs> i found a dozen or half dozen or so articles of people in the world suffering from the vaccine injury that happened to be the same illness that my mom had that was made worse yeah. and um yeah. and in the hospital you know it, it was it was just an incredibly horrible environment um the everything's beeping you can't sleep you know I, I learned about icu psychosis which is something that happens to people and so you're not even in the hospital for a mental illness and the hospital will give you a severe mental illness yeah. and people were coming in with masks and waking her up in the middle of the night someone who's like dying of organ failure woken up in the middle of the night with their masks on in their scrubs saying hi there remember us we're the ones that do your blood pressure you can't even see their faces. There's complete disorientation. It was like being in the twilight zone. It was like being in like a psychological thriller that you would see on, on yeah. in the movie theater. It was it was horrible in any way, but we were fortunately there, able to be with her the whole time. And um, I was not able to face any of it for like six months. You mentioned that it took you a while to connect the dots, whether that was just the, not, the dots being connected or what but for me it was i was so um the the propaganda around the medical industry was so thick that it was too hard for me to accept it you mm -hmm. know i mean my wife and i were already on our like serious uh truth seeking journey we had refused the vaccines and moved out of a town that was requiring passports in western washington and you know we were like hip and i still couldn't do it like, yeah, I it was just too hard. Um, it made me filled with like, like a criminal rage, you know, to be um, and I didn't know how to manage it. And so it took me a long time before I could even talk about it or before I could start researching it. And uh, especially with no proof, you know, like like you said, you don't know what the hospital you don't know how he would have turned out if you had taken him home, if you were there by his side. Maybe they actually did help him in some way. But after being in there like like you and seeing it. It was, uh, it doesn't seem like the most compassionate place for somebody. No, yeah. I'm so sorry to hear about your mom. Yeah, it's Thank you. definitely iatrogenic injury involved in like, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's like the number one killer in yeah. all of. In What's that word? Iatrogenic. It's like mm. doctor facilitated oh, wow. injury. So like mm -hmm. every people who go into the hospital for one thing, they get, you know, they die of something else and at the hands of the doctors. Mm -hmm. and 
that's it's worse than cancer or heart disease or anything. So that I, the 100% that was the case with my dad, but he his disease was um, further enough along that um, I don't know if he would have survived right. either way, but I do know that the way he died was um, inhumane and mm-hmm. I wouldn't wish it upon anyone. Um, just like you said, like, Oh, it gives me like shivers just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I think like I like I just break down on the inside thinking about what kind of fear he must have been feeling mm. in his more lucid moments. Um, yeah, like I was, you know, I'm luckily we were there for for, you know, there are a few times where he was, you know, looking at us and um, you could tell that he was he was there. But mm-hmm. near the end, I was like, I don't. You know, he was having seizures like he had. Mm-hmm. There, there were just so many complications from the breathing tube. Even the nurses were like, I've never seen someone on a ventilator for this long. Two and a half months. They're like, usually they take it out after two weeks. Wow. Like, then it starts to cause infection. And you know what he died from? An, infe- an infection in his lung that blew apart part of his lung. So it was like, there was just so much reckoning after like internally for me i was like i want to murder someone right <laughs> because there's just this is not the way that um humans should be treated and that that's what opened my eyes up to the you know the entire system that we find ourselves in um mm-hmm. but it, yeah like you like i said it wasn't until later that i really sunk my teeth into it and i was like okay this is what i'm up what we're all up against and um you know we're only, I'm only one person. I don't know if I could have made any change to that in the moment, but I try not to think about that. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's the change I think that you are making obviously is in your, your bloodline, your family lineage, you know, the people, you know, I'm, I'm, I appreciate uh, you sharing this story because I haven't talked to really anybody about this that has that really understood. My family understands, but I can see you. And, um, you know, I know you take care of your family and um, your children. And that example could never be ignored forever. Like there has been a, a, fi- a, a fork in your bloodline that has been created based on your awareness and what you saw that was due, that was from your dad, you know? And so yeah. I feel the same way about... Um, about my mom and they said it's like well you know they were taken from us too soon may or may not have been from the medical industry but uh we can use it instead of turning a blind eye and then just doubling down on the ignorance we can um stand as as strong as we can stand which like you said you're like how much could i possibly do i'm just one person um but i think that it, it can mean everything to the people in in our lives um so thank you for getting into that with me uh it's been like yeah, it's been really hard to, to think about it. And <clears throat> and so I appreciate it. And so this takes us to like now where you're at. Yeah. Where you study fear because fear is like everything. Because let's say we did you did know the answers and you had the knowledge to stick up and to call your sick your lawyer on the on the administrators of the hospital. Fear w- could still limit us even if we have knowledge. Yeah. And yeah. So um, would you talk a little bit about fear and what you've learned about how we can work around it? Oh, it's such a big question. Um, I have more specific questions if you, no, no, if you that's want a, one. 
um, fear and how we can work around it. So one of the main things that I've learned from this entire study, um, my li this line of study that I've gone through is, you know, Andrew Huberman, he talks about the courage circuit and you can activate it um, by choosing which stress response you want to move forward with. Um, and so as we all know, there's fight or flight or, or freeze or fawn, but that's another one. Um, so he says, despite it being the most, the highest arousal and highest st stress response, if you are in a situation where uh, you want to cultivate courage and you're scared, you should choose the fight response. Hmm. You should try to move towards your fear. Whoa. Yeah, because that will activate um, dopamine in your system. And dopamine makes you feel good. It It's like the reward pathway that's being triggered. And in feeling good, you'll want to do it again. And by doing it again, you're going to start building that circuitry that'll make you make this habit you know, easier to fall into next time. And then the, the time after that. So it's like facing your fears begets facing more fears. So it's easy for people to feel paralyzed by their fear, um, to, be, to, to be immobilized by it, when ironically, um, movement is the answer, like taking action and mm. taking those steps is, is the answer most of the time. Like, obviously you have to, um, you know, be, you have to be, um, use what's the word discernment in, in what situation you're, you're in. Like, I'm not saying you should jump off of a building or saying something. I'm not saying you should like run towards a tiger. I'm saying if you, if you, um, want to confront someone, you instead of running away, instead of avoiding them, you confront them. If you want to um, say a speech at a wedding and you're scared of public speaking, you you say the speech. Like the, it's it's about understanding. This is another thing: understanding perceived versus real threats. Hmm. That's another thing. Um, um, and one last thing about the uh, the the courage circuit before I move on to that. Um, Sometimes people, yeah, you have to understand your nervous system and what's, what is available, available or feels accessible to you. So if the fight response doesn't feel like it's something that, you know, you're comfortable with, like, obviously it takes time to, to develop that and, and get to a place where, you know, it's not going to trigger you even more to like, you know, move towards something that scares you. So I just wanted to make that caveat, mm. but um, in terms of um, understanding real versus perceived threat th threats. This is what has really helped me in my own mind because I am the queen of just intrusive and ruminating thoughts and, you know, those, those looping can't get out of your head type of worries. I have always been prone to them. And, um, you know, one thing that has really helped me is understanding, um, you know, is this thing actually happening in real time and physical, like in physical reality? Am I, am I in any danger right now? Can I, like, if I don't know the answer to that, if I'm scared, if I'm anxious, like if I, if I can't figure that out, like name what I can see, touch, feel, hear, you know, smell, taste, like though that is where you are safe. That is mm -hmm. what is real. So like grounding yourself in that knowledge um, and that, that, you know, your five senses and that sense of reality, it can really go a long way. Um, when you're when you're trying to understand, you're trying to assess what what it is you're feeling anxious about, and if it's worth you ruminating on again and again. 
So that's been a real helpful thing for me too. And another thing, now I'm just like, now I'm on a roll here because you've opened the floodgates. But Good. Um, thank you. <laughs> something that I've learned recently is um, it's something called competitive plasticity. And it's really cool. I, I'm reading a book called The Brain That Changes Itself by uh, Norman Doidge. And so he talks about competitive plasticity. So everyone knows the the concept of neuroplasticity, like your brain can change. It can right. self-direct its own change and in, in, in its growth. Um, excuse me. So competitive plasticity basically means if you have a habit, you you it takes up a certain brain map up there. It's it like colonizes colonize a certain space. And if it's a bad habit, that's why it's so hard to break because when you when you reinforce a bad habit, it takes up more and more of that brain map. Oh and, wow. Yeah. And it's not as simple as like I'm gonna I'm going to do this good thing instead. You have to like intentionally unwind and unlearn the bad habit and make it shrink down in its in that cortical real estate as they as they call it. Whoa. It's really cool. Um mm -hmm. so like if people have bad habits, if they're like if you are prone to worrying or prone to like anxiety, those pathways, they are so ingrained in, in your brain. Like that circuitry is wired in such a way that they, they have become like super, like neural super highways. Um, meaning like they're the fastest, fastest route that your thoughts will take. Mm -hmm. And, and you have to understand that when, if you keep thinking those thoughts, if you keep using that line of, of thought again and again, and it's not serving you, you are shooting yourself in the foot because it's only going to become harder to break the habit as time goes on because of that, mm. that term, that concept of um, com competitive plasticity. Um, and the one thing to note about the brain is that it's kind of like, um, this is Loretta Bruning. She's another one of my literary neuroscience heroes. She talks about like water, um, you know, electricity in the brain being like water in a storm. It, it, it'll flow and it, it flows in the, in the what is how does she say it um it takes the path path of least resistance always like water will always flow downstream mm -hmm. and it'll, it'll find the fastest route and it's the same with the pathways in your brain like whatever thoughts the types of thoughts that you you think most often that those that's the, that's what your that's where the electricity is going and you have to be intentional about changing those things like feeding yourself new thoughts think and doing new habits, new actions in order to, to like claim back that wow. space in your brain. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. That is, that's unbelievable. I love that expression, uh, cortical real estate, because it, it's a great way to think about it that I've never heard of. Like I never thought about it as like a surface area thing. Yeah. I've always just, cause I've heard about, um, you know, like neuroplasticity and, but I hadn't conceptualized it in more than like a one, or two-dimensional thing where it like expands that makes that makes so much sense um because nowadays so many of us are have anxiety of some sort you know and um it's really i can see what you mean about those looping thoughts and, and what you're saying about how your brain will take that route it's like older people it's like older people are the ex the exaggerated versions of themselves like old people i mean like uh, they're like the caricature of who they once were, because I guess yeah. they're those, that like little trail has just been so beaten through that every day yeah. it just comes right. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's like, a, go, go ahead. ahead. I was saying, oh, 
No, like what you just said, that beaten path, the, the um, analogy that they like to talk about in these books is your brain, like creating a new thought pattern is like, is like slashing a path through a jungle, like a dense mm. jungle. You have to go through it many times because the overgrowth will keep coming back and like you have to keep slashing it down and walking that path until it becomes a trail and then you can start paving it and it becomes a road. But like it, it takes time, effort and repetition. Like you, it doesn't happen overnight. And it, and especially as we age, um, it, it is possible to change our thoughts. Um, it, but it just takes much more intentionality than when we were children because we have um, much less smile in, in our, you know, coding our neural pathways as mm. adults. Um, and that's the stuff that makes our, our, the electricity move faster. So we're like, we have an abundance of it at, in our youth from zero to seven years old, especially mm. from zero to two. We have, so our, our neural pathways are coded with something, it's called myelination. Um, this, it's like a, a, a neural sheath that goes around the, the pathways. Um, and it turns them into like, basically it's like if you have dial up internet versus like high speed internet. Sure. So that's why people, that's why kids learn so fast. That's why they are like, they soak things up like sponges because they, they are like, just, they have this abundance of myelin. I'm mm. sure there's more reasons, but that's one of them. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. It's, it's a good reminder and incentive to get after it. Like if you're not, if you're watching this or myself, if I'm not currently six years old, then I should probably be really working hard before I keep um, to change my mind about things before it becomes static. And then it's just there. Uh, how? So I, I want to assume that we would do these these kinds of reef like the the forging a new trail, trailblazing in our mind with. I would assume that would be like through mantras or something, but how would you suggest someone starts to hack through and create a new trail in their mind? Yeah, it's such a good question. Um, I feel like that's the million dollar question. So mm. one thing that I've picked up um, from Loretta Bruning as well is she, she says that cortisol has a half-life of 20 minutes. So the hormone cortisol it metabolizes pretty like relatively quickly in your system once it's released like unless you trigger it again and again like and then you have like a full-blown anxiety attack <laughs> but if you get stressed cortisol is like you know it's in your system um if you are able to turn away from that stressor or you're able to calm down for a second like that will metabolize so that's one that's the first part of the equation that's really good to know because you can understand like okay i can get a handle on this um the second thing is that she said, knowing that you should pick a um, a healthy distractor that engages more than one one of your senses. So, for example, she uses uses the example of like doing yoga while um, watching a Spanish subtitle film, or hmm. like walking in the park, walking your dog, listening to comedy, or like going up the stairs listening to a podcast. So you're like engaging multiple senses, so you're hmm. not falling back into that those spiraling thoughts and you do that for 20 minutes and you will flow yourself out of that cortisol loop and you can you can like kind of take back the reins a little bit and start from scratch wow yeah it's really cool and then you're not at the mercy of these like this this kind of full-blown like you know panic attack that you can work yourself into if you're not intentional about trying to you know weave yourself out of it and and once you do that enough 
I think it takes like 45 days of a repetition for you to actually solidify something like a new habit, but you can, um, once, like, if you have the, the cue and the trigger isolated, you can start inserting these new habits and that will, that will create new circuitry, new scaffolding for, for, mm. um, these, these healthier, mm. um, pathways, like thought pathways. So that's just one little trick. I'm sure there's many, many more, um, off the top of my head, that's the one. Cool. That no, that's really, that's neat because I think that like, for example, if someone lays in bed at night and they have trouble falling asleep because they're on like, a, I guess a cortisol loop or anxiety, right? That's, I think it's something common when people nowadays, we always have our phones, but if you don't have your yeah. phone, you're lying in bed, you can really send yourself. So, um, to create, even if you had to get out of bed to create this, to do this like pairing of something for 20 minutes, um, then you can kind of do so that when in your mind, when the bedtime comes, if you lie down in bed and you're like, well, now's my anxiety time, yeah. uh, then you can start to be like, no, actually, this is when I lie in bed for a couple minutes, feel the cortisol, then I get up and I do some sort of activity yeah. and break it over and over and over. Um, yeah, okay. and then association cool. will start solidifying in your brain. Another one that is really, uh, it's probably more suited suitable for bedtime, um, is, is like breath work, obviously that's like one way to, um, they call it interrupting the, interrupting the signal. So your, this is something that I found really cool too, but, um, when you're stressed out that the, the stress starts in your brain, um, it like, and then it signals to your body, like physiologically, you're going to start turning on the fight or flight mechanism. So like your brain's like, okay, I see a threat, like I'm stressed out let's get things going like heart rate, sweating, arousal, um, you know, blood pressure, it's going to send that signal down to your nervous system to get things started to get you activated, ready to fight or flight. Um, and then your body will ping back that signal to your brain. And it's like, okay, I'm in this mode, are we still stressed? And your brain's like, Oh, okay, like I have all systems go, I guess hmm. we should keep this going like things. So it's like a it's like the signal that keeps going back and forth. Whoa. So one thing that you can do is is interrupting the, the signal. And people try to talk their way out of or think their way out of stress. But if you can't do that, and sometimes it's impossible to do that. Um, the easier way to do it is to to do it through your body like somatically. So breath work is super helpful with that because you are interrupting this that signal you were disrupting the signal. Um, and, and the way that works is because you're, if you start breathing, breathing deeply, um, and you start mimicking the posture and the body language of a relaxed person, your you will trick your brain into thinking mm. that you are relaxed now. And it will be like, okay, I can cut this signal wow. in off. And you can, it, because it's harder to it's harder to infiltrate your mind when you're stressed out, it's easier to do it with your body because you're for your like, the, the stress hormones are already going. It's, it's harder. Like if you try to do it with your, your brain, like you can, you can talk to it all you want, but like, you're still flooded with all this cortisol. So if you do it with the body first, um, it's, it, it's a much quicker technique. Um, I know that there's another, there's another few, um, few examples like progressive muscle relaxation, like you, you tense your muscles, you start with certain muscle groups and you tense them and then you go, you know, 50%, tense, 50, 80, 90, 100, and then you relax and you take a deep breath. There's certain techniques like that, which will help interrupt the signal as well. It's basically just tricking your, tricking your brain out of being stressed by focusing on your body first.
That makes sense based on what you were saying earlier as well, because like if your mind already has these pathways that are just like totally lubed up and ready to go, they're just like ready for action. And then you're laying there trying to do that kind of orienting where you're like, I'm not in danger. I'm in my (laughs) home. Everything's fine. But that doesn't matter at that point because your brain, you know, and so to, to, to interrupt it somatically. Yeah. Cause I think a lot of us will try to be like, well, I'm just going to like meditate this away, but the, it's, it's, it's not exactly the place that you interrupted at that, at that, at that like cause is not that, um, result or, you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's good to know. Cause I think some people beat themselves up for not yeah. being able to chill out. It's like, well, what the hell's wrong with me? I know I'm fine. Why? You know? And then it's like, you get the guilt of your anxiety and it kind of, gets worse yeah and i think the problem is some people don't really know where the anxiety is coming from like they haven't done enough like self-evaluation or they haven't gone within enough to be like i am feeling stressed about a b and z or x y and z a b and z a b and c either one yeah um so like i know for me i'm like i feel like i'm having a heart attack i don't even know why i'm just on my i'm just on the streetcar to work right one day like i you know, and that was years and years ago where I, I wasn't fully, um, I wasn't as present and, you know, attuned to my body and to my mind as I am now. So I think that's, if you, if that's the case for people, then definitely focusing on, on the physiology part would Mm -hmm. be, would be like a a fast track or like a, you know, um, a quicker way to, to manage it. Cool. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. I know that, um, there's people that I can share that with in my own life that I think will benefit from that. Uh, that's awesome. So when it comes to the part of courage, when it's like action based, right? Let's say the anxiety is one thing, but what about when it becomes like the time, like it's time, you know, this person, my family member said the thing. And now it's like, I've been having this conversation in my mirror for months and it's time for me to actually speak up. Or it's like my boss is doing that thing again, or whatever it is when it's like, this is the time of action in my life. Yeah. Um, but we get just stifled by the fear. Um, Mel Robbins has a really good neuro hack for this. Um, it's, it's so simple. It takes like 10 seconds to execute. And it's, it's basically, she calls it like the five, four, three, two, one anchoring thought plus reframe. Yeah. Um, so basically, um, the, the trick is like, if you're feeling scared, like you have to go on stage or you have to talk to your boss or whatever the case is. Um, and you're in the moment, like you're ready to, you're in the wings, like you're going to do this. She's her thing is like count down from five, five, four, three, two, one, that will awaken your prefrontal cortex. It'll get you out of fight or flight mode. It'll, mm-hmm. it, it'll kind of down regulate you. And that's the first step. The second step is choose in choose an anchoring thought that is uplifting and positive, and it is in the context of what you're about to do. So um, she has an example of like I'm gonna board a plane and I'm I'm terrified of flying. So I do five, four, three, two, one, and then I think about my beach destination. I am so excited to no. She's what she's. I'm skipping it to the third, but she says okay. Choose the thought of like I am gonna be sitting on the beach after my flight, when I land on, you know, this plane, and I'm going to be relaxed and happy and whatever. And then the third step is, 
reframe the nerves to excitement. So you say, I'm excited to board this plane and get to my beach destination because, and that's the, that's the, the part that matters most because fear and excitement have the same physiological responses in the body. It's hmm. have the same arousal response, like the same heart, heart palpitations or like fast accelerated heartbeat, um, flushed cheeks, all that, all that stuff. The only difference is what your brain calls it. So wow. you can relabel it and reframe the nerves to excitement, you can trick your brain out of being scared. And all of a sudden, you know, you can, you can redirect that and, and just give it a different label. And yeah. that's half the battle. So that one, I, I know that one has worked a lot because she, she's spoken about that. I think she even wrote a book about, about the five, four, three, two, anyway, something like that. Cool. That's really helpful because that's also something that people can kind of plan for ahead of time, right? Like, because you like you, you at this point, we're like, we know our triggers. And so we can be like, okay, I have to have this yeah. tough conversation with this person. So I can plan for my, my reframe ahead of time. And I can decide yeah. what the anchor is, right? Because I wouldn't be doing it if it didn't have a positive connotation. And right. so it's like, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to think about the plane because typically we get on the plane and we're like, well, I guess I'm going to burn to death. Um, <laughs> but it's like, no, I'm going to be on the beach in Mexico chilling. And because it's, this is such a cool way to think about it because I, you know, I think we I forget that my brain is a physical entity, you know, and it's like, you can hack it by thinking the, thinking about it as a physical thing, like the way I'd reroute my plumbing in my house if I wanted yeah. to install something. And so instead of just like closing my eyes and be like, I'm going to try so hard, you know, like I can actually do things with intention to hack uh, the, yes. the pathways. And it's yeah. so, it's fascinating. It really mm -hmm. is. Yeah. Like what you just said, rerouting it, it takes, it takes a lot of work. Like I'm not an expert at this, but I know For it's sure. possible. Um, another thing I want to touch on just because you mentioned that just triggered an idea in me because um, I've researched a lot about visualization as it as it pertains mm. to fear management. And that is like a big one, like athletes, like, you know, gold medalists, Olympians, they use visualization all the time um, to plan for like they visualize success. They visualize, um, mm. you know, getting the gold and like like going down the ski hill or like, you know, doing the, the swim laps like Michael Phelps. But they also visualize the things that go wrong, they visualize the unpredictable things like moments of stress. How am I going to react when, mm. uh, for example, Michael Phelps, my goggles fill up with water and I'm doing my my 750 meter swim or whatever. And he won the gold and he beat right. his world record wow. and that actually happened. And he credited credits it to his his practice of visualization with his coach hmm. as he swam three quarters of it blind. Hmm. So wow, he had prepared for it prepared for it so it wasn't just like some woo woo i'm gonna imagine i'm gonna manifest or what is it? i'm not just gonna law of attraction water out of my goggles i'm just gonna train what happens if the, yeah, yeah because this is so fascinating um i i'm so i'm just like geeking out about it but when you visualize something it's no different than when you actually execute it as it as it pertains to your mind like there's no difference mm -hmm. So there's been so many studies where, um, for example, like they, they took one group of people and they had them play scales like up and down on the piano, practicing whatever, five hours a day. And then they took another group and they had them do the same exact practice of scales, but in their head. 
And mm-hmm. after a week, they did they did CT scans and they had the same area of brain growth in both sample groups. Wow. So they were like, you can learn a skill just by thinking about it. Like, obviously, that's not to you don't only do that. But like, they've shown that even like, yeah, Olympians and athletes, the ones who who um, train mentally, they, they train their minds um, in addition to their bodies. They they do so much better when it's actually when mm-hmm. it comes down to to crunch time. Um, and another example I can give is um, in the in the context of a medical emergency, like when it comes to stroke victims, um, this was it just blew my mind. Um, so when you have a when someone has a stroke, it's because you have a blood clot in your brain in a brain artery and oxygen is not getting there. And then you start having like dying tissue necrosis. And that obviously causes like paralysis with whatever area of the body is associated with that part of your brain. But they found that stroke victims who visualize using the affected limb, even after paralysis, they can increase blood flow to that part of the brain and diminish the tissue death. The amount of tissue death, and and they can save parts of their own brain by yeah. using your brain. Wow! They can call like your brain. <laughs> you can call upon it to save your life. Oh my gosh! It is so powerful. Like it's so funny because you explain it so simply and so like scientifically, where it would be like where you know typically I think a lot of times it'd be like you know you can just think your way into health. People would be like a lot of people are like yeah whatever like hippie new yeah. age, but this you're you're yeah it's actually. And it makes so much sense what you're saying. I thought I was the same way. I thought it was a bunch of nonsense a few yep. years ago. I thought the same thing. I was like, this is like, yeah, whatever. I can visualize things. I can manifest. I can like have my vision board. But no, like it's it's real. Right. Especially <laughs> real. if you if you really um, if you do it with conviction repetitively. Yeah. Right. Because it's not just about like believing it once a week. It's about practicing that belief over and over and over to, to rewire and to, to build those new pathways. You know, I work as a online as like a health coach. Mainly I do mainly it's like food coaching. I help people lose weight through a, an app. That's like a really well-known app, but um, a lot of time, mainly we, we talk to people about food and a while back I heard this and I hadn't considered applying it to like different areas of my life as much, but people are like, I just really want to like binge on all these like donuts or whatever. It's the middle of the night and I just want to like wreck all this candy. Um, and we know that if the thought when they're lying in bed, imagining the donuts in the fridge or on the counter, that feeling is often greater than Mm -hmm. when they're actually eating the donut. (laughs) So then they get up and they go have the donut and it feels good, but it's like 80% of the satisfaction of the imagination of it. And so sometimes I'll tell people just try really imagining it. Like when you get that craving, instead of just hitting the craving and then getting up for the fridge, just lay in bed and indulge in the craving. Like it's some sort of like fantasy and then process the whole thing and then finish it like with the climax as if it was like some sexual fantasy or something. And then you're, uh, and then they might be like, well, I'm done. And then they could go to the fridge and be like, it's not good. You know? And then, um, That's to be fine. honest, I don't even know if it works, but sometimes I do tell people that, but I haven't done any like, uh, well, research. Makes yeah. It makes sense because, um, dopamine is released only in the pursuit of a reward or pleasure. Not hmm. when you actually have like when you eat it. So like, if I am eating dinner and I know I'm going to have ice cream after it, I'm like that I'm surging with dopamine. But like when I actually 
get it, it stops. Like dopamine only. Whoa, that's crazy. You only release dopamine in in pursuit of something. That's that's what happened with our our ancestors, like hunting and foraging. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, because then you'd stop. Yeah, because then you'd stop if you got what you wanted. But it's all—it's like about the endless pursuit. Like they have to always be right. finding resources and and you know that type of thing. Yeah, because if you didn't, if your dopamine didn't stop when you got it in the ancestral environment, you would just continuously pursue what you didn't need. Um, yeah. And so it makes sense that it stops when you get it because it's like yeah. okay, chill now. But nowadays we can always get more and more. Oh and yeah. So it um you can no problem. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really exciting. Yeah. The idea of turning um, the anchoring that you were talking about earlier and reframing the the negative emotion and turning it into positive with the dopamine, like going after the dopamine as a an intentional way to fight your courage too. Um, yeah. It's really, it's really fascinates me. Yeah, the and what you just said about reframing, um, another way to combat like fear and anxiety is is just that it's it's called cognitive reappraisal. So which is a fancy way of saying reframing. Um, And it's basically just like looking on the bright side of things, but it's more complex than that. When you break it down, it's like um, it's. So I, I wrote about this in my in, in an ebook and I, and you, I liken it to um, com- like music composition. Like you can listen to a song and you just you hear it like most people just listen to a song and they hear it as like one song, a piece of music. Like it's just it's a whole piece. But if you actually break it down into its its parts, like you have the you have like the beat and the bass and the drums and the and the the vocals and the instrumentals, like it has all these moving parts. And, and it's the same with our lives and our experiences. It's nothing is like exclusively good or exclusively bad. There's always like good in the bad and bad in the good. And if you can start to tease things hmm. apart and be like, this was a shitty situation, but I found this good thing within it. You can start dialing up the volume on those good things. And there, there's like a slew of like health, like positive health benefits for doing this. But um, one, the main one being when you reframe things and you have like that more optimistic mindset, um, it's, you are training your brain to seek out the good in the world. It's, 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 it, it's a function of something called the reticular activating system, the RAS. And that's like a bundle of nerves in the, in your brainstem, which basically controls, um, like the it's it it's like a filter for all the data that's like constantly hitting you in your senses like it filters through everything and it chooses what is important to you what is meaningful to you and then it filter like the rest is in your subconscious or mm. so the things that you the things that you choose to focus on you will you will see more of those because you are training your your ras to act like a sieve that only catches the things that 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 you perceive to be meaningful in the world. So if you wow. are, so if, yeah, if you were like, and you can, I have so many examples of this, like in my, in, you know, with my friends, like I have a cynical, skeptical, negative, you know, le- leaning friend who like everything is always wrong. And she always gets the, the shitty end of the stick and has the worst luck. I'm, I'm not even joking, like everything, but it's like when you start thinking about it in terms of the brain, it's like you, 
that you that is a self-fulfilling prophecy 100% because you are mm-hmm. so focused on what can go wrong that you are you are training your brain to be activated to seek out threats literally mm-hmm. yeah to manifesting it yeah it, and it and it seems like this woo stuff but it's not like you no. are training your brain to be activated for danger and so that no. is what you will see and then it's like this it's like this catch 22 how do you get out of it because you will you will be in those situations where um things will not going go according to plan and then that will reinforce that belief system so like you have to you have to get out of it like and, and that's that's the only way to do it is just like start reframing things start looking on the bright side of things mm-hmm. you know wow that's really that's really powerful you know it makes me think like a lot of people this would be really challenging because people identify with their particular specific brand of like victimhood or oppression or whatever it is like someone that's like well i got this little black cloud following me all the time and uh, they become that and so if they had you know so in order for them to begin the process of reframing and rebuilding new pathways they would first have to admit that they don't want to be in that anymore and a lot of people probably are like no this is where i'm comfortable always like finding the dark side or being like well this sucks and you know um, I have like financial scarcity or, or romantic scarcity or friends or job or whatever. Like, um, so it's a, it's a, it's a tough thing to think about when you give us these tools, because you can, you're giving us these tools to basically rewrite our brain, change our life, overcome our fear. But a lot of people would probably be like, I'm like, damn, I don't know if I am ready for all that power. You know, there's, yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a paradigm shifting practice. Like you really have to uproot your belief system about everything mm-hmm. i think like i i don't think i would have been ready to hear any of this a few years ago or or never mind like put it into practice but um that's another reason why i'm doing what i'm doing right now with my fearless rising account is because i want to give people back um autonomy and 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 power to like heal themselves because i know like we obviously know you know the institutions that are around us with like the self-help stuff and the therapy and the it's all tied together with big pharma and whatever blah 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 like there's a lot of um there's a lot of ways you can you can be misled um when you're seeking help for For especially for mental health issues um i i never like i've been I've been prescribed anti-anxiety medication, but I never, I never filled the script. Um, and I never wanted, like, I was like, I'm not messing with that. I just, I would like to do things the other way. Um, and there's, I've been to therapy, like all different types of therapy, like grief counseling with my dad and, um, like cognitive behavioral stuff. And then the more somatic experiencing. And there's like, I found that there's some therapists who, they did in like 10 sessions what they probably could have done in two. Hmm. You know, there's a lot of like gatekeeping and like information being withheld, like almost like drip, drip, mm-hmm. dripping out, like, because it is a business. And I know there's honorable people that work in that industry, of course, but part of me was like, I just want to learn it myself and I want to do things myself now. Like I'm not going to be, I, I, I don't think I'm going to be needing as much, intervention now that I, I i'm going straight to the source like i sure. I, I want to understand my brain and i don't want to be at the mercy of someone else telling me what i'm feeling or how things work like i just want to understand myself yeah. so i can mitigate things so i can i can heal my heal my own self 
So that's another another big reason. Like I want to give people back that that freedom to do that. That's really important, and that, you know that ties into this thing I've been learning a lot in the last couple of years about the relationship between freedom and responsibility. And it's like freedom isn't just like I'm learning isn't just like this thing that we live in like a snow globe. It's like are you in a free world or a not free world? It's like free is how much responsibility you put to change your own life, regardless of what the systems say. And so right. if you if you wanted to be free of your the systems that are holding you in like fear and yourself that's holding you in fear, you just I don't. You're going to just take it upon yourself to learn the information and then you're just going to distill it for us. Um, and I really appreciate that. It reminds me just the other day I was listening to a talk with Michael Sarian and the guys from Here for the Truth as part of the Rise Above the Herd course. Yeah. And he was like, if you have an interest, he has like that cool Irish accent, but he's like, if you have an interest, find the people who are like the top 1% in that field and read their books. And in like one year, you yeah. can become as educated as any graduate student walking around, that's right? Amazing. Like just go right to the top. And that's exactly what it seems like you've done. You just in a few years, you've like just consumed all this really specific content, you know, like I saw something on your Instagram page and it was a quote, I think by Warren Buffett. It's like, write down your 25 dreams and goals and yeah. just th throw 20 of them in the trash or in the, <laughs> or in the like for later bin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Focus on the five, right? And it's probably even more effective if you focus on three or two. Yes. Um, and so yeah. it seems like you've you've just spent a couple of years focusing on this thing. And you're like, now I'm like reaching out to you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share this and I'm going to give your insights to people in my life that I know deal with anxiety. Um, so it's saucy you made it happen. Thank I, you. I'm wondering, I know we're getting close to the time, but I'm wondering if you have a comment on the idea that there's like so many obvious problems in our world today and people are crippled with fear because the propaganda machines of the media and the new and the commercials, every single where you look, there's something to be afraid of. Yeah. Um, you know, the idea of like people not acting in courage around their fear. It, do you think there's like a pan, a fear pandemic or a courageless population issue or something? Definitely. Yeah. I've never heard someone um, refer to it like that, but I think you're onto something. Um, it's such a loaded question because I feel like um, I, I don't feel scared of, of the world we live in anymore because I feel like I understand it more. And I, I, um, with, with that knowledge, I, I am armored you know, mm. I can decide what I make myself available for. And fear is not one of those things. Um, because I feel I feel like I have a good foundation of, of knowledge under my feet now. Um, and it goes back to that the the self responsibility and that radical sense of like, ownership over our own lives. I think that's like a huge piece like people are just, there's learned helplessness everywhere. Like people just are victims like victim mentality is is rampant and i think that's part of the problem like they're outsourcing their power to everyone left and right and so mm. of course they're going to be scared because they they've given away everything like if they if they have no control over their lives over their minds because they refer to this doctor or this pill or this teacher or the, whatever like i i prefer to assume complete responsibility for my life and in doing so mm. i I can choose what what I make myself available for because I I know 
I know, um, yeah, I believe in my own capacity. I believe in my own um, exploratory capacity to understand, you know, the way things work now. Um, and I think a lot of people miss that mark. They don't, they don't seek out answers, or maybe they think that there are no answers to seek out because they can just ask someone in a position of authority. Yeah. Um, so I think that would be one trait that I would focus in on is like your exploratory capacity, like how willing are you to, to just walk down this path and try to figure out for yourself why you are afflicted with whatever and see where it takes you. And it, it'll branch out in so in a hundred, like my, my self-directed learning journey has like branched out into like a web of intricate design that I could not, I could have never fathomed before. Like I've looked, I've read about like homeschooling and the, the, the history of the schooling system and the carnivore diet as it pertains to my dad's autoimmune disease. I've gone down that road and I've gone down like the shadow help and Carl Jung and I've like, hmm. you know, so many different modalities and different disciplines and lines of thought that like, I, I'm like piecing together this, this composition of the world that I, now I see it through a different lens and I feel more empowered because I'm like, yes. I can put these pieces together a little bit better now. So I would just suggest or invite people to just, just start asking more questions and, and let, let your curiosity drive your path forward because it'll take you in, unimaginable and wonderful places if you let it. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, that's a beautiful, um, a beautiful culmination of all the things you've been working on and you're like living it too, because you've done it in such like, and like you said, his journey has been a few years and you've brought it all together. And now you are like, you're saying all the ways that you look up things specifically, and then you are the only one that can interpret that specific amount of information into the world. And so like every combination, every conversation then becomes authentically and uniquely yours because you yes. didn't just get your input from the news and output. You, you did it yourself. Um, yeah. Like true, yeah. true thinking and true learning education, uh, self-education. Um, Thank you. And the, yeah. and the journey I feel like has just begun for me. Like I'm only a few years in, I'm just really excited about how much more, um, how much more I can learn. I wanted to share what that got me thinking what one I wanted to share one more thing about the brain before we call it close. Please do please do because it relates to um, like learning. Um, and how do I explain this? So the brain, it's arranged like the neurons up there, they're arranged topographically like a map, as it relates to how we are ordered in terms of our body parts. So like, my fingers, they're like middle finger and pointer finger, they're side by side in my body. And similarly upstairs, my pointer finger, like the neurons that control my pointer finger and my middle finger sit side by side. So for example, my son, he was playing, he started playing piano, taking lessons. He's only four, but he was, he was mashing on the, on the piano, on the keyboard. Think like he was, he was not able to isolate, um, the different keys and it's because it's so interesting um, I'm gonna try to do this justice but when when you're learning something it happens in two stages 
So first the neuron, like what we talked about before the competitive plasticity. So basically the brain map, when you're learning something, it expands. So it takes over more space. So like he's trying to mash on the keyboard with like his whole hand, not the, not understanding that he is not actually in individuating his fingers. Hmm. The second step of learning is that when you have mastered that skill a little bit better, the brain map shrinks back down. So Whoa. when he had a breakthrough, he was able to do a scale with his his fingers. And I was like, it's happening. Like his, <laughs> his brain map is And And the reason why this relates to learning is that you can – you can learn an infinite amount of things and those that brain like it will never it will never colonize the space like the, the space that you have upstairs because the neurons they just get more efficient it, it's not like it will keep expanding like you will you can keep learning and learning and the things that you 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 take in you will just get more mastery over them it's kind of like how to explain it like when you learn a new instrument or whatever it takes like you will be, be, you'll be tensed up. You'll make a face when you're playing like you will you're mm -hmm. using different body parts like and then when you gain a little bit more mastery over it, it's like you can relax. You're like more eloquent or elegant. You you have more grace because those those neurons up there, they become so much more productive and efficient that they don't hmm. take as much space up there. So you wow. can like X. So anyway, that's why we can learn an infinite like supposedly amount of things and the uh it, it you know it will never colonize enough space up there just that, that's so beautiful thank you for sharing that you know i grew up in south texas on the gulf area and every road trip we ever took you just see these huge refineries you know with and uh they're turning crude oil into gasoline or whatever that you could buy at home depot little paint thinners and it's, it reminds me of what you're saying where you just refine it you're refining it refining it and so it doesn't get um it might be less voluminous but it yeah. is of higher it is of higher quality. Yes. Uh, and then you, you know, you might pull out like this giant thing of crude oil out of the ground, the size of my house, but then it turns into like this much that you can use inside your, you know, your iPhone or whatever. Um, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. I love that. Um, one time at a museum, I wish I could remember where I was. I saw statues of humans and the statues, the, the proportions on the humans' bodies were just like outlandish. And what it was, was it was, they, they put the proportions on the human physical form in the proportion of how much space they take up in your brain. Oh, wow. And so it's like, for example, like my side here is, you know, it's not super um, tactile compared to like my lips or the bottom of my foot or my finger. Oh, yes. And so like I can, you know, or my tongue, for example, like my wife always says that if you close your eyes and imagine any texture on your, on your tongue, you can feel it without even touching it. You can just look oh. at something and you can know how it's going to feel on your tongue. Wow. Um, and so the, the figure was huge. It had like giant feet, huge hands, big lips, huge tongue. Yeah. Um, of course, there were other parts of the body that was all, that were also really big because they're quite sensitive. But the person looked ridiculous. And it was like, that's how much you're... And, that's really cool. And so it reminds me of... Uh, Anyway, the more of what you're the what you're talking about in the brain. Um, well, thank you so much, Sarah. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate you meeting with me. Um, before you go, is there uh, somewhere you would like people to get in touch with you? Yes, people can find me on Twitter um, at fearless underscore rising, and same handle on Instagram. But I'm more active on Twitter. Cool. Um, yeah, just hit me up. My DMs are open. I have an ebook, um, seventy page. 
ebook called The Courage Blueprint. Um, nice. If anyone is interested, I can just send them that for free. And wow. I was using it as a like a resource for my newsletter sub subscribers. So I'm happy to share that with anyone who's interested in learning more about what we've talked about today. Cool. Well, thank you so much. We'll definitely put all of these links that, uh, in the show notes, including some of the books that you mentioned and some of the thinkers that you've been inspired by yeah. so people can follow. Um, wonderful. Yeah, thank but you so much, Paul. This was so wonderful. I felt like I'm so energized by this. Chat. <laughs> Good. Me too. I, I had so much fun. And you know, of course, you're always welcome to, to come back whenever you want. Um, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Have a great night. You too. Thank all right. Well, that's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. And if you would like to support the show, you can make a donation on PayPal. You can find me at Mr. Paul Bry at M-R-P-A-U-L-B-R-I. Or feel free to pick up a copy of my book uh, recently on Amazon called International Backpacking and Domestic Travel, What I Learned While Traveling the World, a Comprehensive How-To Guidebook. You'll find that link below in the show notes. Take care. Thanks again and grow food, not fear.